0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest today. She is Leslie Leland Fields. She is the editor of a new book entitled The Spirit of Food, 34 Writers on Feasting and Fasting Toward God. We thought it would be appropriate to spend some time talking about this topic as it relates to the celebration that we have on Thanksgiving, family and friends gathered around that feast table um, in, in a sense of celebration and appreciation for the bounty and goodness that the Lord Has shown toward us in the last year. And at the same token, looking at this unique connection that we see throughout Scripture between Christ, our relationship with the Lord, and food. Speaking earlier about that great banquet table that we'll enjoy um, when that last trumpet sounds, um, Jesus. Himself referring to himself as the bread of life, giving us a living water. I'm reminded, too, Leslie, at Thanksgiving time when my grandmother was still alive um, and I've tried to continue the tradition um, as I've taken over hosting the, the annual family Thanksgiving gathering to bring foods to the table that were representative of of a number of of sources. Uh, There was always bread as a gift from Earth, uh, fish as a gift to us from the sea, uh, the turkey, of course, things of that sort. Uh, In an Italian household, you might uh, serve wine with the meal, uh, celebrating the the, the fruit of the vine. Mm -hmm. Always that sense of trying to connect the big picture. Is that a big part of what your writers do in this new book in terms of connecting the big picture between gathering together for a meal and the way that a meal is celebrated in light of our relationship with the Lord?
2: Oh, absolutely. And they come at it from all different perspectives, which is really fun because some of the writers are um, farmers. There's a woman who's a wheat and pig farmer in Canada and who's, who's talking about it from the perspective of a farmer. Other people are professional chefs. Others are just um, um, someone who grows tomatoes in his Cincinnati backyard. And, um, suburban backyard and so people are coming from lots of different perspectives and showing us lots of different ways to reconnect um, our food and our faith and but all of them what we're trying to do is is to return to God's intention for for meals and for feasting which really was about commemoration and, and that's what you're talking about you said you would have you know a fish something from the sea and something from the vine and and the Old Testament you know God in inst- Instituted um, all of these feasts. I believe there are seven feasts that that God um, instituted, and every one of them is intended to commemorate. Something, you know, that God has done, whether it's the harvest festival or whether it's the Passover commemorating the, the, um, you know, the angel of death passing over um, the Israelites. But there's always this connection between um, real events and God's provision and the food on the table. And I think as Americans, I think we have, we just I think we've forgotten, forgotten that connection and made it so much about the food. So I'm hoping that with this book that we can begin to, to reconnect food and gratitude.
1: The book is a fun one because you have each of the authors share some perspective, some tell some stories, then they eventually lead into, into recipes. So it's, it's wonderful the way you, you've combined all of this. And, and interesting, I'm, I'm curious about where you gathered, how you selected these authors. Uh, we have stories in there and recipes, for example, from a relief worker's mobile kitchen that responded to uh, the hurricane down in, in uh, Louisiana, the uh, Katrina. Uh, I, I was struck to one of the writers the goddaughter of a woman who once, in, in running her, her little restaurant, who once cooked for John Dillinger. How fascinating.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, you know, there, there's just so many fun stories of how this all came about, but <clears throat> some of the people... Um, a few people I knew, some of the people I knew already, and I, and I knew that they had really interesting, fascinating thoughts and, and about food and, and interesting food practices. And so I would ask them, uh, like Lucy Shaw, some people, she's quite well known. I said, Lucy, would you write an essay on something about the connection between food and, and spirit in your life? And so I asked um, a number of uh, of people to, to write something for me. And then I found other essays um, in, in books. There are some real classic um, essays in there, one from Wendell Berry another from Robert Farrar Capon so just some and Andre DeBuse, some really well-known people who've written beautiful pieces about food and then they were friends of friends, you know, someone said well, I know this woman who used to be a baker in Manhattan and she just up and packed everything up and moved to an organic goat farm in Maine and she's a writer, <laughs> so it just was incredible how this network just spread out and, and I got all these amazing people to to write for the book, uh,
1: there are recipes of a kosher nature here that that take us back to the uh, the Talmud and uh, the way a, tr- a typical Jewish family would would prepare a meal, which I found interesting. Even vegetarian recipes.
2: Yeah, yeah, there are a few people in the in the book who are vegetarian and who feel very much convicted by God at this point in their lives that that's you know that's how. Um, They should eat, but you know the neat thing is, there's when we start talking about food, and then you start talking about um, what we eat as a Christian. Sometimes people can get really legalistic about it and start making rules and laws, and and there's none of that in here. You know, these are people writing beautifully from within their own food lives and giving us a picture, really kind of illuminating some of the possibilities for for um, for eating, you know, in, in a more faithful way.
1: Now, you are based out of our our 50th state, you're way up in Alaska. Actually, we're the 49th. 49th, I'm sorry. I, I, I moved you down a notch. I, <laughs> yeah,
2: Hawaii, <laughs> That's right. Hawaii is 50.
1: Hawaii did come in afterwards. You're yeah. absolutely right. After after World War II, I have to keep my uh, my my numbers straight here in my head. So you're <laughs> from our 49th state. Um, any any contributions in here from you?
2: Yes, um, I mean I have an essay in here um, called "Making the Perfect Loaf of Bread," and um, I bread is a very goes very deep um, in, into my life and my life story. I grew up. Um, very, very poor, um, with a, a father who didn't work and a mother who with six children, so she wasn't really able to work. And bread was kind of what we lived on. We made our own bread, and um, this is back in the '60s. Okay, so I'm going to reveal my age here. But um, so we made 21 loaves of bread a week, and that was our that was our main source of food. We didn't have a lot of food, but we did have this bread. And so I grew up making bread, 21 loaves a week, and then, and, and I've made all my own bread out at our fish camp. We, um, live on an island off Kodiak Island in the summer where we commercial fish for salmon, and it's very remote and... I make all of our own bread out there. So I'm really looking and weaving together my own life story with bread, together with um, all the biblical imagery of bread and the significance of bread, and I'm also asking the question about perfection. What is perfection, and what is the value of our human making? Because there's a recipe out there now online, I'm sure all the bread makers out there know about it. It's called um, no need Bread. You can make this wonderful bread without kneading it. I mean, it basically makes itself you know just by sitting overnight. And um, to me it, it is a wonderful bread, but it's sort of tragic to think that you don't have to put your hands in the dough. you know You don't get to lean your body into it. The, the bread is just not nearly as, as alive and as much of a creation from your own your own hands and your own body. Um, So I'm doing a lot of reflection about that.
1: You know, and it's interesting. I, I think back again to my grandmother and the homemade bread and the smells that would come from the kitchen. Uh, and how marvelous those experiences were. Uh, again, this sense of, of celebration all the time. Even in Italian tradition, if someone purchases a new home, as you go for the housewarming, you bring a loaf of bread, yeah. a large stick of salami, and a bottle of wine for celebration, and that mm-hmm. the, the home would always have uh, sustenance. There, there would always be a food and joy in that home. Uh, lots of just strong images that I think as we sit down and... And enjoy our meal on Thanksgiving, or even as folks go to prepare it, that this should be less so about the time it takes. And sometimes we get caught up in all the details mm-hmm. and and don't really enjoy even the celebration that can be a part of the the celebration that happens once you break the bread, once you sit down to feast. And that is just the process of the food preparation itself.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, that's what I want to say, too, is that we we are so speed-focused and convenience and efficiency-focused, and I'm just as bad as everyone else on this, but it's a great time, especially for these special feasts, to just slow down and and enjoy the food that, that, that those yams that you are peeling or cutting up smell them feel them enjoy their incredible color and um, just uh, just marvel at, at, at onions and garlic and all of these things that are God's idea God's creation and clearly God is a God of beauty and God is a God with really excellent taste buds because <laughs> he, he clearly values, um, beauty and taste and just, just the sensuality of all these foods
1: hopefully we've given you some uh, some more, uh, forgive the pun, food for thought as we head into Thanksgiving. And a delightful book that, uh, while certainly timely for this season, is a perennial that you'll enjoy throughout the year. It's called The Spirit of Food, 34 Writers on Feasting and Fasting Toward God, replete with all kinds of really delicious recipes and the kind of spiritual perspective in here that I think uh, gets you refocused on the important things and all of the, the parallels that we see drawn in Scripture between the sustenance we enjoy, uh, the food that is on our table, and our relationship with the Lord. The book, published by Cascade Books, available through Amazon.com. You can also get more information at Leslie's website. at simply Leslie-Leland-Fields.com. So just put a hyphen in there between leslie leland and that'll take you right to her website. The Spirit of Food. Leslie Leland Fields, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Oh, thank you. It was was a lot of fun to talk about this subject. Thank you.
1: And uh, might I say, bon appétit.
2: Oh, and, and, and the same to all your listeners.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts. All right, welcome back to the program. Class is now in session. Long time listeners to this radio program know that I am not necessarily a major fan of government education. Oh, I think the concept of public education is is a great one. And I think providing quality, free education to uh, those in our nation is something that is very important to do for our children. And I wish that we could do more even for higher education, as many countries are able to provide higher education at little or no cost to their students. That said, government Education as it is today, is something that is quite troublesome. Now, I won't waste your time reading from one of my favorite documents that um, we got from an insider of the California Teachers Association, the uh, Guidelines for Academic Freedom in Public Schools, which came out several years ago, that uh, identifies a number of enemies of um, public education, including, um, let's see here, you'll love this enemies list. Uh, Some names will sound... uh, uh, familiar to you. Uh, the Christian Coalition is on it, Focus on Family, Eagle Forum, Traditional Values Coalition, the Rutherford Institute, Concerned Women for America, um, on and on the list goes. That That's who's on their hate list. And of course, Friends of Public Education, uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, People for the American Way, a National Coalition Against Censorship, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, Uh, The American Civil Liberties Union, on and on the list goes. I've read some of this to you in the past, uh, and you know that it is an eye-opener to be sure. Well, my next guest, in fact, had a little bit of an education, so to speak, on what goes on education himself. Uh, He's the founder of the Education Action Group, regular contributor to townhall.com, owned by this fine radio station's parent company, Salem Communications. Uh, His new book is called Indoctrination, How Useful Idiots." I love the subtitle. How useful idiots are using our schools to subvert American exceptionalism. And Kyle Olson, great to have you on the program tonight.
0: Thank you very much.
1: There seems to be certainly a significant shift that has taken place in public education in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. I remember uh, Phyllis Schlafly's best selling book, Child Abuse in the Classroom, that exposed what was going on in the uh, 1970s. And, and even just prior to that, we've made the shift from what traditionally had been teaching our children how to think to now today teaching them what to think
0: that's right and and in fact what is happening is we have this social justice agenda in American classrooms where instead of kids thinking in uh, in terms of black and right uh, black and white uh, right and wrong uh, good and bad um, the social justice agenda is to have students develop this nuanced view where um, you know they're they're thinking in shades of gray, and so uh, this this moral relativism that is being pushed now, and so what I try to show parents and taxpayers um, in my book is all of these examples of lesson plans, textbooks, curriculum, videos um, that are in public school classrooms today. Not every single classroom, uh, but many of them around the country. Um, uh, these issues that are being pushed on kids at very young ages. um, Parents need to know about it uh, and they need to stand up and do something about it.
1: Let's talk about what they need to know about all of this. I mean, to begin with, we certainly have heard the studies. We know of the reports. We've seen the kids come home with the report cards. We know that achievement at certain levels in government education today is so dismal. And ironically, consistently, the unions have been so opposed to any sort of performance standards to the point where you wonder, well, are are they first and foremost there to educate our kids? Is this about jobs or is there something other agenda going on here?
0: Well, unfortunately, I think it really does come down to jobs. I mean, that's why, you know, you think back um, during the stimulus and uh, and all the other bailouts that have been proposed over the last couple of years, and none of the none of the spending and uh, proposed new spending coming out of Washington D.C. had anything to do with student achievement, um, raising test scores making sure that every child can read when they graduate, which seems like such a radical concept. Um, but instead, it was about jobs and protecting jobs in um, those sorts of things. And, you know, on my most cynical days, I think that public education, public schools are little more than public works projects for the adults.
1: And to some degrees, not only keeping themselves employed uh, with very little standards. And, of course, once you get teacher tenure as part of the process and realize that the largest and most powerful union in America today, and I I love to pose this question to uh, the unindoctrinated that will say, well, it must be the Teamsters or maybe it's the the Longshoremen's Union or, uh, you know, some, some similar union that they're familiar with, until you tell them, no, it's the NEA, the National Educators Association. That is the most powerful union uh, literally on the planet, Uh, all of which. And again, I'm not saying that that teachers don't have a right to collective bargaining and certain, you know, employment protections and things of this sort. But when it goes so far that that the teachers rights, even at at so-called educational uh, liberties um, or instructional freedoms, academic freedoms, uh, take precedence over actually giving the children an education that they can walk away with and do something with. I, I think it's an absolute crime.
0: That's right. And and going back to how you opened the segment, where you mentioned the different organizations, that shows that the NEA, the National Education Association, is more about, uh, it's a political organization. It is not a professional organization saying, how do we make sure that we have a quality teacher in front of every uh, classroom in America? That's not what it's about. It has a political agenda. Unfortunately, it's a hard left political agenda. It's run by um, uh, left-wing activists um, that are elected and, and make the decisions on behalf of many of the, the, uh, the rank-and-file dues payers around the country. And so the, the question is, um, that is, that is what we are running into. And so the question is, what can we do about it? And I, there's, there's many things. I mean, one, teachers, uh, rank-and-file teachers uh, who don't like this agenda... Who don't like paying the dues to see them go to organizations like NOW and People for the American Way um, and NARAL and all of these other different organizations, Planned Parenthood? They've got to stand up. Teachers have got to stand up and say, "I refuse to do this." And it's not easy. I mean, there was a, there was a teacher that contacted our organization a couple days ago. Um, he tried to get out of the, the Michigan Education Association, which, like California, um, is a closed, essentially a closed shop state. But even though he technically dropped out of the union, he still has to pay five hundred dollars a year in dues. And so, if that's to me, that's one of the biggest shams in public education. Um, is that if you want, if you want to be a teacher and if you want to try and make a difference in kids' lives, you have to pay this organization whether you want them or not, and it's a huge sham.
1: And, of course, beyond that, uh, we get into the the instructional integrity or lack thereof, uh, which is going to be, I think, the eye-opening focus of our conversation this afternoon. And I I want listeners to really pay close attention. There there's some things that we're going to share with you this afternoon that's going on, most likely in your child's public school, that I think you need to be aware of. And I think you'll think twice about whether or not you can actually afford to privately educate them or even homeschool them as superior options. Now, again, let me put in the disclaimer here before I get hate mail and calls of complaints. We're not suggesting that all teachers uh, have an agenda or that they don't care or that they're all about uh, indoctrinating kids. I know a lot of teachers that are fine, hardworking people that really care about kids, really want to equip kids with the tools and skills necessary to not just uh, think for themselves, but to ultimately succeed at life and excel in their chosen career or profession, uh, but make a difference in the world, too. And we applaud all of them. The criticism today is what goes on in the agenda at the higher levels within the union, the union leadership, and quite frankly, those that do promote, uh, what else can we call it, but a political and social activist agenda. Think, well, how widespread is is this? <laughs> Where do you find out. We'll get to that aspect of our conversation with Kyle Olson. The book is called Indoctrination. How useful idiots are using our schools to subvert American exceptionalism. We'll get a time out here, then come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts. All right class, uh, with the uh, school in session here, we should ring I have a bell ring in there, Richard. I should have brought the bell in here. Um just to give you an example of some of the agenda taking place that goes beyond just so-called academic freedom in the classroom for um, school teachers, but to even the manner in which the influence has taken place in the authorized textbooks, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to quote on one of them. This comes from page 11 of Kyle Olson's new book, Indoctrination, um, just talking about uh, manufacturing and uh, this uh, this particular passage, and I quote, uh, Rose was right. Some passages subtly put down the United States. Uh, for example, here's a quote. Companies in Japan make reliable televisions and radios. German factories make some of the world's best cars. Some companies in the United States are very good at making computers. Did you catch that? In America, only some companies excel now it's amazing i mean to be sure um kyle we have seen some amazing advancements in technology by both germans and by japanese firms a lot of that technology that had its roots and genesis right here in the united states and yet it seems as if we just kind of we kind of take third position third seat there to other foreign countries
0: right and that was um That uh, that passage that I quoted there was from a column by a Washington Post columnist um, who did this analysis of a book called Social Studies Alive, uh, which is a a third-grade textbook um, geared towards very young kids, and it pushes this this one-sided, biased um, agenda um, uh, uh, against, frankly, an anti-American agenda. And so it, it was interesting because... This book, Social Studies Alive, has come under a lot of scrutiny because it is biased. Um, it, it only focuses on um, a, a left-wing perspective, and even this this lip self-described liberal um, uh, columnist also came to that conclusion. And it's a great example of a textbook like that, a biased textbook, getting into the classroom, um, and then the establishment—whether it's the teachers' union or a, a school board or the administrators then defend it and they say oh there's no bias in it, and, and you know, and this is this is the type of information that kids should be learning.
1: You know, it's amazing because the the inaccuracies and in the agendizing of education goes from the subtle to outright demeaning and obvious, as you cite there in that particular passage. Uh, you know, no, no acknowledgement of the fact that the automobile was invented in the United States, the mm-hmm. computer was invented in the United States, uh, that uh, the the, the uh, tubes, uh, the precursor of uh, transistors. Invented in the United States. The uh, U.S. gets no credit for that. It just says that some companies, some companies, do a good job. Not an excellent job, just a good job. So, you know, I, I guess to all of you that work for, uh, you know, some boring companies like IBM and Hewlett-Packard and uh, uh, Texas Instruments and others, uh, just, uh, oh, well, too bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that—that that is what is such a shame. And what I find disturbing about this is that is that uh, uh, teachers will use this textbook and then, um, and, and what is most disturbing about this textbook in particular is that it leads question it leads students to a particular question where then they have to give essentially a predetermined answer. Um, and so it will, it will say, it, it will talk about um, child care as a right and how there are some countries, uh, like Vietnam, for example, that gives child care as a public service. And shouldn't the United States have that as a public service, too? And so here you are as a third grader, and what do you honestly expect a third grader to say? No, we shouldn't do that. Um, And so what it's doing is it's it's setting these kids up to give an answer um, that unfortunately... The, the activists in the classroom want to hear.
1: And of course, it leaves out a lot of the, the important facts, such as uh, somebody has to pay for that uh, child care, and that in communist countries like Vietnam, and I know because I've been there, uh, yeah, they're providing that, uh, that child care for free. It's also a way in which they introduce and indoctrinate young children into the benefits, so-called, of communism.
0: Right. Isn't that convenient? And, so, and that, that's the thing. Is So do you honestly expect a, a third grader to say... Well, how would that impact my my parents' taxes, or what you know? And 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 so you can't honestly uh, expect someone a a young child of that age to be thinking in those terms. But but what I show in the book is that these types of issues, um, whether it's it's that type of issue or social justice math. Um, or whatever it may be, is being pushed on kids at younger and younger ages.
1: So the stage is being set, then, for political and social activism in public schools as opposed to what heretofore had been education.
0: That's exactly right. And because there's this mindset uh, in in public education uh, by by many people within the establishment that they feel that it's their duty and their right uh, to use their classroom to push this personal political agenda. And they view um, their role as turning students into um, agents of change. And so we shouldn't just be equipping them for life and making sure that they, um, that they have knowledge so they can go to uh, go into a higher education or a career or the military or do whatever they want to do. Uh, we need to turn them into agents of change. And to me, that is what is so disturbing about, uh, about public schools today.
1: And let me tell you how far some of that uh, that change factor takes place. I'm going to quote again. This is page 38 of Kyle's new book, again entitled Indoctrination. And I quote, this is quoting an article uh, of Howard Zim. And he writes, granted, it's good to have historical figures we can admire and emulate. But why hold up as models the 55 rich white men who drafted the Constitution as a way of establishing a government that would protect the interests of their class, slaveholders, merchants, bondholders, and land speculators. Close quote. So we have now reduced the founding fathers of the most successful and freest nation on Earth. One of the few nations that has a problem with people illegally getting into the country as opposed to trying to escape. Are you listening, North Korea, Vietnam? Etc. cetera, et cetera. Uh, And, and we've, we've suddenly now done an absolute 180. Yeah, granted, there were things about America in the 1700s that we probably wouldn't be very prideful of today, but the fundamentals of why and how this nation was founded and upon what basis is something that is held up as a pride point in, in nations all across the world, apparently except our own.
0: That's right, and, and it, it's such a shame because Howard in. Um, who, who that quote is from? is it, held up um, on in, in leftist circles um, in high esteem of uh, because he is this historian who has you know this uh, has recast American history, and this is what he is producing. And unfortunately, he actually he has produced textbooks, and his textbooks are in uh, U.S. history class classes in American high schools today. And so this is the type of, of um, quote-unquote, history that high school students are, are being fed. And so it's no wonder that we're seeing our, our personal liberties, um, our self-governance, um, our, our uh, free markets being eroded, um, because you know, people uh, aren't uh, appreciating them, they're not seeing the value in them, and they're thinking that you know, America is to blame, uh, free markets are to blame. And so we have got to change those and and fundamentally transform America.
1: Well, I've had uh, teachers in the past and concerned parents even send me copies of passages from history books that have characterized Mao, for example, Mao Zedong, as the great liberator of China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, much like, I suppose, uh, Stalin liberated the Russians, uh, Kim Jong-il liberated the North Koreans, and... Hitler liberated the Germans. We'll come back to more of this startling agenda of what's going on in some circles of public education, not about educating children anymore, but rather indoctrinating them as miniature agents of change for their agenda. Our conversation tonight is with Kyle Olson. The book is called Indoctrination. How useful idiots are using our schools to subvert American exceptionalism.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts with
1: author Kyle Olson. How deep and widespread is this agenda? Well, let me give you another example from his new book, Indoctrination, a teaching lesson plan calendar uh, that um, helps teachers highlight for children some of the important dates in history that they need to be mindful of, Um, such as August the 5th, which represents the 30th anniversary of Ronald Reagan breaking the Air Traffic Controllers Union, Or uh, August 10th, the 50th anniversary of U.S. spraying toxic herbicides in Vietnam. Um, February the 17th, notable for being the birthday of Black Panther Party founder Huey Newton. Uh, Let's not forget November the 20th, Transgender Day of Remembrance. Um, How about November the 26th, Buy Nothing Day. Uh, April the 29th, the 20th anniversary of the start of the Los Angeles Uprising (laughs) People rioted not for Rodney King, they rioted to steal, and that's the uprising. Of course, May 1st is International Workers Day and least, let us not forget May 20th which uh, and, uh, marks the anniversary of Cuba's independence from U.S. occupation. Yeah, nothing in there about uh, uh, the Fourth of July, 1776. Uh, dare we talk about such things as the American moon landing, Pearl Harbor, uh, any of those important events? No, it's all got to have some sort of a agenda behind it, Kyle.
0: I'm sure they just ran out of space. <laughs>
1: no doubt. And uh, So many important I, days to remember.
0: Yeah, nothing about Constitution Day uh, or anything like that. And I think, again, it's a great example of um, putting a resource in front of teachers and then raising those questions. Because then there are other uh, another aspect to that uh, social justice uh, planning guide is a, a question for each day. And so they're just incredible... Um, questions about you know, just dealing with these social justice issues and all of that sort of thing And so what I fear happening what I fear is happening is that um, our classrooms are turning into these social justice laboratories where um, activist teachers are turning our students into uh, fellow activists, to change America.
1: Well, and the other interesting thing that, that dawned on me, I read one passage in, in your book later on uh, when you talk about the Great Depression and you quote from another wonderful piece of revisionist history here, uh, the old adage, those who forget history are condemned to uh, repeat it. Uh, as the curriculum of many of these history books has a very strong pro-union driven uh, re- re- uh, revisionism to it. Uh, let me just, this one quote here, and you know, here we are in the middle of the greatest recession that America has seen, um, uh, perhaps overshadowed only by the likes of the Great Depression of the late 1920s. Um, and if you try to understand what caused the Great Depression and the, the crash of October 29, uh, here's where one history book squarely puts the responsibility. And I quote, soon Ford automobile produced more cars than people could buy. Other business owners made the same mistake and workers were fired. So many people lost jobs that the 1930s were called the Great Depression, close quote. So it wasn't the stock market crash that pulled the U.S. economy to its knees, that prevented people from having access to the credit and cash they needed to buy these things that forced companies to fire workers. It was the greed of the companies themselves that produced more goods than where they were
0: capable of selling. Talk about revisionist history. That's right. Isn't that it, it's incredible? And uh, there's another example uh, talking about unions, where the California Federation of Teachers has produced many lesson plans um, that teachers are using today. and one of those, was how to start your own uh, small business, where they created the the Yummy Pizza Company, which you know on the face of it you go, well that sounds interesting. And I come, I personally I come from a small business family. Um, so I know the dedication and the hard work that goes into, uh, especially starting a small business, but maintaining one. Um, but what I quickly found as I read this lesson plan was that 40% of the lesson plan dealt with starting the union for the employees. And so suddenly it was obvious what this lesson plan was about was actually was was the union component. and uh, And so the other interesting thing that I find is that so what happens is school districts and states have requirements. So um, students need to get uh, you know, X amount of math and X amount of um, English and art and that sort of thing. And so what, uh, what the activists will do is they insert these different types of things to meet the requirements. So in other words, in this Yummy Pizza Company example, um, the, the art component was creating membership cards. And designing a logo for the union. Um, And so it's, they are just, they're absolutely relentless in creating, in in inserting this personal political agenda um, into curriculum.
1: And, you know, again, I, I have no problem if teachers wish to organize and unionize and are looking for, you know, workplace standards and higher wages and things of this sort. That's fine. But don't bring that in as, as an integral part of your job and recruit your students um, in in the effort to try and then, you know, uh, be uh, be minions for change. And, you know, maybe some K you can get the, you know, a bunch of six-year-olds to go out and lobby for higher pay. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well,
0: well and speaking of that, There's an example in the book where um, a a third-grade teacher from Milwaukee Public Schools in Wisconsin um, actually had her students write letters um, to the school board complaining about the budget cuts. And again, these are third-graders, so these are, what, eight-year-olds, maybe Mm nine-year-olds? They can hardly, they don't even know about their family budget, let alone a a multi-million, if not billion-dollar enterprise that is a, a public school district. And so she had her students write letters complaining about the budget cuts, and it's, it, what, what we see around the country is example after example of, um, of students being indoctrinated, um, students being used as pawns, unfortunately, to do the dirty work of the union.
1: Well, I recall even talking to a young man that was a recent high school graduate, and we got on the topic of World War II, and um, I made some comment about Pearl Harbor, and the date December 7th did not resonate in his mind at all, uh, and after some protracted discussions, uh, he revealed to me that as best as he could recall, yeah, he kind of remembered a couple of details about it, but that they probably spent not much more than a half hour talking about Pearl Harbor and World War Two and the American involvement in same, both in the uh, the Pacific Theater, helping to uh, uh, to fight back the spread of uh, the Japanese uh, uh, onslaught, as, much as, as well as what we did in in Europe against the Germans, and uh, and yet though had great recollection of, of uh, great detail, uh, spending what he characterized to be about a half a week talking about the results of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Of course, the events that precipitated all of that, uh, he knew nothing about. So, you know, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? In this case, neither, I guess. That's
0: right. And, and, and that is what is, is shameful, is we're losing our history and our students are not coming out of, out of school uh, with just very basic knowledge about what America has done for the world and what free markets have done and what capitalism has done. And instead, uh, we are to blame, and, and, and the example of the atomic bombs, you know, we are to blame um, for, for you know, the horrific events that took place. Um, because, um, you know, we're racist or we have this imperialist uh, agenda or, or whatever the case may be. And so uh, kids are coming out of... And to me, this is the irony, is these are government schools. I mean, you would think government schools would be, if anything, would be indoctrinating students to be a pro-America. But that is not what is happening. I mean, they're coming out of government schools believing that America is to blame uh, believing that free markets um, and, and, uh, and uh, capitalism are to blame for third world poverty because we go and we exploit uh, countries and we exploit people and we, we uh, rape and pillage for resources and all of this. I mean, it's, it's, it's an absolute shame, um, but it is going on in classrooms around the country. And so again, I say Um, And my question for parents is, do you know uh, what your students are, what your kids are learning?
1: And if you don't, you need to get educated toward that end, because after all, folks, we are paying for it to the tune of over $55 billion a year in the great state of California alone. We've just touched the surface of of a few of the excerpts of Kyle's new book, and it's a page turner, it's an eye-opener, and if you've got kids that are attending government schools or grandkids, uh, get educated, would you? And maybe you're going to Think twice about uh, what you need to do, and I know it's a tremendous sacrifice to a private school or homeschool a child, uh, but maybe uh, once you read the book, you'll find out it's high time you do so. Kyle Olson, thanks so much for being with us. The new book, by the way, published by Arthur House, and uh, you can get copies through Amazon.com or also information through Kyle's website at Kyle, K-Y-L-E, Olson. OLSON.org. Again, the book Indoctrination How Useful Idiots Are Exposing Our Schools to Subvert American Exceptionalism.